been said that theology is always lead to doxology, meaning that the study of God ought to always lead us to a place of worship. To study him and to look at these things and to have it and to have it conclude with um, hearts that are still hard or hearts that are, are lukewarm. We fail to, to see with, with clarity what it is that, that God has revealed to us about himself. We're, we're finishing up chapter 11 today, the book of Romans. And in, and in this study that we've done for well over a year, year and a half, we, we have gone through just incredible doctrines. Being able to look at what Paul is teaching us as the Holy Spirit inspires him to, to write these things, to, to teach us just incredible doctrines like we are saved by faith alone. It's not based upon our works, but solely and completely by, by faith alone. It's not based upon our keeping of the law. It's not based upon how well we've performed. But it's all based upon Christ fulfilling all righteousness and then taking that righteousness and placing it upon our accounts. And, and you study something like that and it just it, it makes your heart just overflow with joy and praise because you look at it and you say, like, I, I couldn't do it at all on my own. And, and yet he's paid it all. You go through first part of the book of Romans and you just see that we are are sinners. Not only are we sinners, but we're dead in our sins and trespasses. Not only are we dead in our sins and trespasses, but we weren't seeking him. We weren't looking for him. It wasn't that we were trying so hard. God says that, that we are running in the opposite direction of him. And when you start to look at the depth of our sin, that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. You start looking at that, and it, it just takes us to a place of, of praise, doesn't it? Because you come to a place of, I, I, didn't, I didn't have anything to offer him. Not only did I not have anything to offer him, but I was dead in my sins and trespasses. I was covered in sin. The inclinations of my heart was evil continually, and yet God saved me. And you start looking at that, and it, it, oh, it, makes, you, it makes you love the cross, doesn't it? It makes you worship him. Verses like in chapter 3 where Paul says thing is, things like, where is boasting then? It's excluded. Where's boasting? Can we boast at all in the salvation? And his answer is absolutely not. He goes through and begins to just show us that even from Abraham, he was justified by faith. It wasn't by works. Teaches us that we're we're dead to sin. Not only are we dead to sin, but we're dead to the law. And, 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 and as a result, we are no longer under the law in, in, in the sense of, of knowing that Christ has fulfilled all of it so that it's not as if we sit here in this congregation this morning and we look at our lives and we say, have I done enough? Have I kept everything in order? Am I good enough to approach God right now? But we just look and we say, he fulfilled all of the law. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. And Paul just goes on through the Holy Spirit, inspiring him to write these things, to just bring us to a place of praising him that we're no longer under them bondage of the law, but we're under grace. And he, he takes us from there just to show us that it's all of God. Telling us that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. He wants us to understand the security that we have in him. He wants us to understand that we are secure because we serve a God who works all things together for good. For those who love him, for those who are the called, according to his purposes. He tells us things like those he... He foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 
Moreover, those whom he predestined, these he also called, and those he called, these he also justified, and those he justified, these he also glorified. And, And then he just starts talking about the love of God for us, God's love for us. Is there anything that can separate us from his love? The answer that that is given is if he, if he did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Or in all things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither life nor Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we just look at that and we think, there's nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. There's nothing that can bring condemnation to you because he's the one who died. Nothing that can take us out of that place of being in his hands and secure with him, nothing can separate you from his love. And it, it's doctrines like that that just bring our hearts to a place of, I'm safe, I'm secure. He'll, he'll never love me more than he does right now because it's all of grace. And it's these doctrines that bring us to a place of praise. Paul shifts in in chapter 9 to start talking about Israel. And he tells us things like, I I tell you the truth, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. And he just begins to say, I, I would do anything to see them come to know Christ. I'd give up my own salvation if it was possible to see them come to know Christ. But then he begins to point out it's not that God's not in control. It's not that God made these promises and said all that he said in the Old Testament and now he's just so frustrated and he can't work things out and those that he called, his own special people, the Jews, now they're in a place of total rebellion and God has no control over it. Paul just goes on to say, no, this has all been a part of God's plan. He, he goes and, and, and talks about his sovereign election over all people and talks about Jacob and Esau and just begins to go through and bring us to a place of looking at it and saying, God, you're accomplishing your purposes. I mean, you you would never get through the end of Romans chapter 9 and come to the conclusion that God's frustrated. You never get to the end of Romans chapter 9 and come to the conclusion that God is not totally and completely in charge of everything that takes place in this universe. It is so clear when you go through that it just brings your heart to a place of saying, there's none like him. He begins chapter 10 again by saying, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He shifts to chapter 10 and just says, My heart's desire, though, is that Israel would be saved. And then talks about preaching the word. And then he asks the question in chapter 11, I say then, has God cast away his people? I mean, God made all of these promises to Israel. You look at them and clearly there's huge numbers of them that were not saved at that particular time, although Paul makes it very clear that there were many that were saved. But there's huge numbers that weren't saved. And so now he asks the question, has God cast away his people? And the response is, certainly not. Then he begins to point us ahead to what's taking place in the future. Begins by saying, I'm an Israelite, I'm a Jew, I was saved. But then goes from there to point us to what is going to take place in the future. 
specifically for the nation of Israel. In verse 25, that's where our text is this morning, he begins by saying, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. He's teaching us something and he says, I don't want you to not understand this because if you don't get this, you're going to become proud. If you don't understand what I'm about ready to tell you as the Holy Spirit has revealed these things to me and to you, you're going to be wise in your own opinion. You're going to start thinking in ways in which, well, look at me, I, I figured this out. Or look at us, we're saved, they're not saved, God's given everything to us and he's just discarded these people. And he says, I'm writing you this so that you don't become like that. I'm writing these things to you, I'm revealing these things to you so that you're able to see that God is in control of these things and you're not to be wise in your own opinion, but God made promises to Israel and he will fulfill it. And then he begins to tell us when. That the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This blindness of Israel has happened until this point in redemptive history where it refers to the fullness of the Gentiles having come in. Some would look at this and say it's that point in which all of those Gentiles in whom God would save have been saved and you now have entered into that time of millennium or that time of the end of history where God is going to do a radical work in the hearts of, of the Jews. I look at this and it, just, it brings me just incredible excitement to look at it. went to Israel and, and you go to Israel kind of expecting as you go to the Holy Lands to, to just be moved in just incredible ways as you see the road in which Christ walked and, and that road to Calvary. And Honestly, it, it was. I mean, I, I was moved in just incredible ways. But at the same time, there's people everywhere selling little trinkets and, and selling all kinds of stuff that you would never, you know, want to place in your house. And, and everybody's saying, oh, come into my store, come into my store. And you're walking along this road, and it's, it's a little disheartening because you, you, you kind of you want to just walk and see how it was at that particular time. And it's just been merchandised with tons of, of little shops. But even worse than that is you see that there's an incredible hardness towards the gospel by so many people who are there. And to think that there is going to be a time in which the fullness of the Gentiles has come in you hear words like that, and it's just, there's a plan. The fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then he says, and so all of Israel will be saved. The reason why that brings me joy is I just look at this and I say, there, I see that there is going to be an incredible revival that takes place. The Holy Spirit is going to work in ways in which is just absolutely incredible as far as changing hearts. Not only just changing hearts, but literally saving a nation. I mean, those that would look and, and, and want nothing to do with us. I remember I was playing 
ping pong. Playing with somebody who I was traveling with, and there was these Jews that these these young boys that that came in, teenagers, and we're there at the hotel, and I I said, "Do you guys do you guys want to play?" And the reaction was just like, Ugh. I mean, just disgust on their face. And then they left the room as if it was like with these particular young boys, they had been just ingrained to you, you dirty Gentile, you cannot talk to me. And then they walked in the opposite direction. And I looked, I was like, they say something wrong? I just asked if they wanted to play ping pong. And to think that there's hearts that are like that, that, that they literally want nothing to do with Gentiles nor the gospel, and to think that there would be a revival that would take place in which they would go through and look at Scripture and their eyes would be open and they'd be able to look and say, it's all talking about Christ. I mean, it, it talks about the holes that would be there in his hands. It talks about them spitting upon him. It talks about them plucking out his beard. It, it talks about the crucifixion just in incredible detail, casting lots for his clothing. Incredible detail as far as them looking and staring at him. Incredible details of where he would be born, where he would be raised, where he would die, how he would be buried. Incredible details that you look at and you say, it's all pointing to the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And to think that their eyes would be open just as there's many Jews who are here in our sanctuary this morning who, whose eyes have been open and they go through and they look at it and they say, it's so clear, it's so clear, the gospel is so clear. And, and those of you who, who are witnessing to those who are Jews, going through and pointing them to Scripture and showing them and saying, look, it says it right here. And Right now, seeing the hardness of their hearts as they hear it, but to think that there will come a day where God will cause their hearts to be soft and their eyes to be open, and you just see radical revival take place in Israel. And you see here where this, this is being said, so all Israel will be saved. And I do not believe this is talking about spiritual Israel as far as all those. You can't get through the end of these chapters and think that it's, it's strictly talking about the people of God and not talking about a nation. So it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with him. I'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with him. These words are huge because you look at it and it goes right back to, to this is a covenant that God institutes, a covenant that God brings about. It's my covenant with them. It's not based upon whether or not they meet me halfway. This is my covenant that I am going to make with my people. There is a plan. Have I cast away my people? Certainly not. There's a covenant and I will take away their sins. A radical verse, isn't that? I'm making a covenant. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. A salvation that comes to them just as it has come to us and God's covenant that he has made with us in which through faith alone our sins could be totally and completely removed. I stopped at verse 27 and just read that again and again saying, when I take away their sins. Thinking of every sin I've committed and to think of the Lord our God who says, I'll make a covenant and I'll take it all away. Gone. Just, I'll, take, I'll take it all away. In verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but Concerning election, they are beloved, why? For the sake of the fathers. 
The promises that were given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. These promises that were given thousands of years ago. God says, right now concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning election, beloved. They're beloved. And it's not based upon what they are doing. It's not based upon the sweetness of their hearts. It's based upon covenant. It's based upon something that God said, I made a covenant with their fathers. I made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. I made promises to them as far as future Israel and what would take place for this land. I mean, you begin to look at it, and it is just amazing to think about what God has done. You you look, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but you you think of, of Jerusalem being taken over, AD 70, the destruction that took place. You look at the the dispersion of all of the Jews all over the globe. I mean, you could go throughout areas like Western Europe, Eastern Europe, parts of Asia, parts of Africa. You'll find Jews in all kinds of areas. And to think that on May 14th of 1948, Israel became a nation again. People came in from every land and they were all coming into this place in which now they have their their nation again. I mean, these are things that are unheard of apart from looking at the fulfillment of God's covenant promises that he has made with his people to say, I will do this. I mean, you go through and you begin to look at it and you begin to look at the promises that were given and it's just, it's amazing to think about. The promises that have been fulfilled by God who is a covenant keeper. So he continues. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Love that verse. He's talking about promises that are given. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I was reading from James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on this section, and he talks about the Greek philosopher. Um, Heraclitus, where this philosopher lived over 2,600 years ago in Ephesus. And, and he said, quote, it is impossible to step into the same river twice, end quote. Meaning that things are always changing. If you go to the river and you put your foot in it, step out, wait five seconds, put your foot back in it, You haven't stepped in the same river twice. It's all new water. Everything's new. Everything's changing. And Boyce goes on to say, you can't step into the same river twice. Well, true enough. But you can anchor your boat in the faithfulness of God Almighty and plant your feet on the rock that nothing in heaven or earth will ever shake. And if you do, you'll find that God is unchanging. You'll find him to be exactly as he was to Abraham and Moses and David and all who have gone before or who will come after you. You'll find him withdrawing his gifts. I'm sorry, and, and you will not find him withdrawing his gifts because of some failure in you or repudiating his calling of you once you've come to Jesus Christ. God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. look at this and to think of our God the same yesterday the same today the same forever to think that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him his gifts his calling are irrevocable they cannot be taken away I love that. I look at this and I I think of the implications of that for us, his people. In the Heidelberg Catechism, written there in Germany hundreds of years ago, it starts with, it's a series of questions, and, and the kids were to memorize this, and they would do like certain questions for every Lord's Day. So 52 sets of questions, and the kids would memorize them for each week, and they'd go through them together as a family, and And the first question that they were to do, so when your kid turned a certain age and was able to memorize, um, you would start this, and and you you would start teaching them these things. And so the first question that would come up is, 
what is the only comfort in life and death? That's the question. What's the, what's the only comfort in life and in death? Here's the response that these kids were to memorize and answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins, delivered me from the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. It's a good answer. The only comfort in life and death is that you are not your own. You belong to your Savior. The only comfort in life and death is that with His precious blood, He has fully satisfied payment for all of your sins. The only comfort for life and death is that you are not in your sins anymore, but He has fully satisfied all of it by the work of Christ upon the cross. What's the only comfort in life and death? is that he's delivered you and me from the power of the devil. He's delivered you. What's the only comfort in life and death? That he so preserves you and me. He so preserves you that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Radical. Unless it's God's will. He so preserves you that not one hair can fall from your head apart from his sovereign will accomplishing that. It's the only comfort in this life and death. That all things are subservient to my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life. He assures you of it. It makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Love that. I look at this and it's just to, to think that to think that he holds me and he works in my life that he so preserves me that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Not even a hair can fall from your head apart from his will, much less you fall out of his hand. He says, I hold you in my hand. The Father who's greater than all holds you in his hand. There's no one that can snatch you away. And the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Look in We see that, that idea of irrevocable is that it is not able to be changed. It cannot be reversed. It can never be withdrawn from you. It's irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so that's the point of Paul in this section. He's going through and he's talking about these covenants that have been given to Israel. And he's talking about this salvation. And he's talking about this work in which he's going to take away all their sins. And then he goes from there to say, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. It, it is unable to be changed. It cannot be reversed. It can never be withdrawn from you. It is yours. On that same week for the Heidelberg Catechism, the second question is, how many things are necessary for thee to know um, that thou, enjoying this comfort, may live and die happily? What do you need to know? How many things are necessary to know that you may live and die happily? And here's the answer that's given. There's three. The first 
how great my sins and miseries are. Second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. So those are the three things. If you want to live and die happy, what do you need to know? You need to know how great your sins are in your miseries. You need to get that. You think that you're okay and you think that you are, are not in desperate need of a redeemer. There's a major problem in your heart. You need to be able to understand that you are a sinner and that you're covered in those sins. The second thing that you need to know is how you can be delivered from all your sins and miseries. What's the answer to that? Through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ and his work upon the cross that he, the son of God, became man and he died on the cross and took all of your sins upon himself. Took the wrath that you deserved upon himself. And he tells you, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. His righteousness comes upon your account. Your sins go upon his account. And it is only through faith in the work of Christ upon the cross that you can be saved. And so the second thing that you need to know to have happy life is to know that there's a way for you to be delivered from all of your sins and miseries, and that is in Christ. And the third thing that you need to know is how shall I express my gratitude to God for such deliverance? As a result of being saved, how does that change me? How does that change the way that I walk and the way that I talk and the way that I live, the way that I am in my house, the way that I am with my friends? How does it change me to know that my sins have been removed through Christ? So we look at this and we see that verse for for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Knowing that, it just radically, it radically changes the way that we think. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. It makes it so that we are able to live and die happy knowing that there's a salvation that has been given to us. And it cannot be taken away because God is bound by his promises. Just as he said that he would do things to Israel thousands of years ago. Paul's saying it will come to fruition. I guarantee you it will come to fruition. And so we look at this and we see we, we serve a God who is a covenant keeper who takes away sins and he does this. His gifts, his calling are irrevocable. It changes us. It causes our hearts to be glad. It makes us live and die happily knowing this. In verse 30 it says, For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have been disobedient, have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. We see that it's going to happen. God is going to work through us who have been saved to bring his people, Israel, to salvation later on. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Everybody's a sinner. But you just look at the inclusiveness that he might have mercy on all. And so Paul has gone through and just showed us God's promises continue. The salvation is great. It all comes by faith. He's a covenant keeper. He'll accomplish these things. And then you look at the pen of Paul and you just look and you see what he does is he just stops. Because there's something that took place as a result of this theology that he has learned as a result of this theology that he's just written as he's thinking of how it is that God has saved people and what he has done for miserable sinners and what he has done to make it so that they can have salvation and how it comes by faith alone and it's not of work so that no one could boast and how he takes them from there to looking at it as far as this is what he has accomplished and this is how it has occurred and it is according to his sovereign hand and it's all a part of his plan and he has all of these things in control and there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God and there's nothing that can bring condemnation for you. He's the one who died and he just lays it all out and just says, and, and I want Israel to be saved and God's promises are continuing 
continuing on and he's going to be faithful to his covenant and he's teaching them all these things and then he just stops and he begins to praise and worship God. He just stops in the middle of it all and just says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Begins by that phrase, oh, and he's just like, get this, look at this, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And he just worships. You see, the, the theology always leads to doxology. It always leads to praise. And so you look at this, and it's just, his heart just starts to pen praise. And the words that come is the depth, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Knowledge is gathering information. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. The depth of it, the riches of it. Not only does he know all things, but he knows exactly what to do with all things. He knows everything. He's acquainted with all of our ways. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He knows when you rise up. He knows when you sit down. He knows your thoughts from afar off. He has worked and he's placed you in your times and your boundaries, Acts tells us, so that you might grope for him and find him. He's determined these things. He makes promises and he keeps them. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unsearchable are them, that is, God's sovereign decisions and decrees. That there must be some mystery for us as you go through sections like Romans chapter 9 and you look at God's sovereign hand over all things. There has to be a place where you just look and say, how unsearchable are his decrees, his decisions. I mean, Paul's look at this saying, all of Israel is going to be saved. You could be sure of this. God is continuing his promises to him. And then he just stops and says the depths of it. It's, it's, it's past finding out. I mean, to, to think of a God who says, chosen you. Before the foundations of the world, according to the good pleasure of my will. And we just stop and just say, I, don't, I can't get that. I, They're unsearchable. His judgments, his ways are past finding out. It's impossible to trace or to track down the means God uses to put his decisions into place. You can't do it. You can't go through it. Who can know the mind of the Lord? You can't. And so he just stops and just is thinking of God and what it is that God has accomplished and how God saved Saul, who became Paul, who delighted in killing the Christians, and now God saves him, and he stops and says, the depths of it. It's unsearchable. And you sit here this morning just saying, me too. I mean, how is it that God saved me? I'm the least likely to be saved. I was running totally opposite of him. This is what God did for me. This is how God called me. He made it so clear. The gospel came forward. A heart that was as hard as stone became a heart of flesh. All of a sudden, I saw my sin and my misery and my need for a redeemer. And now it is that I live for him just wanting to please him. How did that happen? Oh, the depth, both of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God is past finding out. I can't trace it back. I don't know how his mind works, but he has done this. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who has? I mean, who's known the mind of the Lord? We we have a a tendency to think that, that we're so smart. You look and, and we, we, try to, we try to counsel God. Do this. Do that. Do, what are you doing? Why don't you do this? And to, and to be able to, to look and say, look, he just knows better. He knows all things. Jonathan's turning six this week. 
So is Natalie. Or not turning six, but she's turning three. Her birthday's this week. Tasha's birthday's this week. Mine will come next Monday. It's our Otsuji birthday week. Big week for the Otsujis. And Jonathan, he thinks he's so smart. And he is for a little guy. We were driving home from school and leaving the school, and I turned right. Capitol High School is getting out of school at the exact same time, and it's just bumper-to-bumper traffic. We're sitting there for like 30-something minutes, and he sits there in the back of my car. He's going, Daddy, you, you made the worst decision. <laughs> you made the worst decision to go this way. Like I did. I usually go left and go down like three miles and get on the freeway and come back. But I thought, oh, it won't be that bad. It was that bad. And so we're driving. Why did you make that decision? That's a poor decision, Daddy. And I'm like, all right, man, I get it, dude. I made a bad decision. What am I supposed to say? So we're getting on the off on-ramp, and I have my big truck, and he, he's like, just drive over that curb and go around those people. Get on the freeway. Just drive over it. You have a big truck. Drive over it. I said, buddy, there's a policeman right there. He just pulled someone over. He's like 15 feet away from us. And Jonathan said, he's preoccupied. I turned around like, where'd you learn that word, preoccupied? He says, it just means, Daddy, that he's busy doing something else. You should know that. Like, listen, little smarty pants. He will leave whatever he's doing to come get me if I go over that curb. But even worse, we try to counsel God. Why would you let this happen, God? Why this in my life? Why that? What are you doing? You're supposed to be in control, but all these things are happening that are not a part of my plan at all. Not knowing that God has sovereign purposes that we have to look at and say, like, depth of it I mean, who's to become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid who's given to him where God now is like okay I'm indebted to you you've done this I've, I'm, I'm indebted to you I mean Paul is just talking about God and saying he's not a debtor to anybody he doesn't owe anybody anything he does things according to his sovereign purposes and he's good and he works it together for good but he is not a debtor to anybody and if you think that you're this big you're not you're way down here and God is radically bigger than you are he is sovereign and all-powerful and knows all things and he works all things according to the good counsel of his will and there's no one that has given to him that it should be repaid that's radical for us, isn't it? I mean, when we sit there and we start thinking, like, he owes me. I've lived a good life. Why would he let this happen to me now? I mean, like, who is he? Why would he do that? I mean, when I get to heaven, the first time I'm going to go up there, I'm going to say, like, why would you let this happen? And I just think, like, dude, you don't get it. You don't, you don't know him. You're not going to go charging up to him for anything. You're just going to fall on your face and worship him when you see him there. And you look in heaven, you see there's no need for the sun because he shines in all of his brilliance. And all the angels don't stop day and night praising him. You're going to join in them and praise with them. You're not going to be charging up and saying anything to him. I mean, we do not become his counselors. And he does not owe us anything. He gives us blessings according to his sovereign purposes and his sovereign decree that works things together for his good in the universe in the end. And we need to be in a place of saying, I'll trust you. Though you slay me, I will trust you. I trust you. And then it finishes with this amazing verse. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. We see this. For of him, his sovereign will. Through him, his sovereign activity. And to him, his sovereign glory. It's all encompassed in there. For of him, his sovereign will, he does these things. 
through him. It's his activity. I mean, God accomplishes his purposes. He's not sitting there just frustrated. He says, all the Gentiles will come. The fullness of the Gentiles. Then all of Israel is going to be saved. And this is what I'm accomplishing. And this is what I'm doing. And this is the place I have for you. And this is what I've done in your heart. I mean, the sovereign activity of God to say, and this is what's going to take place. And to look from there and to see for his sovereign glory. Through him and to him. All of it is for his glory. To whom be glory forever. Amen. To whom be glory forever. Amen. God knows all things. He's bigger than us in every area. We like to think of ourselves as big, but we're not. He has all things in control. And he loves you. I read from Chuck Swindoll's book, Mind Over Matter. And I'll close with this, just putting things in perspective as far as us in relationship to God. Leo Giglio does a great job with this as well. But let me, let me just read from Chuck Swindoll. Imagine a perfectly smooth glass pavement on which the finest speck can be seen. Then shrink our sun from 865,000 miles in diameter to only two feet. And place the ball on the pavement to represent the sun. And step off 83 paces. And to represent proportionally the first planet, Mercury, put down a tiny mustard seed. Take 60 steps more, and for Venus, put an ordinary BB. Mark 78 more steps, put down a green pea representing Earth. Step off 108 paces from there, and for Mars, put down a pinhead. Sprinkle around some fine dust for the asteroids. And then take 788 steps more for Jupiter. Place an orange on the glass at that spot. After 934 more steps, put down a golf ball for Saturn. Now it gets really involved. Mark 2,086 steps. And for Uranus, put a marble. Another 2,322 steps from there, and you'll arrive at Neptune. Let a cherry represent Neptune. This will take two and a half miles, and we haven't even discussed Pluto. If we swing completely around, we have a, a smooth glass surface five miles in diameter, yet just a tiny fraction of the heavens, excluding Pluto. On the surface, five miles across, we have only a seed, a BB, a pea, a pinhead, some dust, an orange, a golf ball, a marble, and a cherry. Guess how far we'd, we'd have come, or we'd have to go on the same scale before we could put down another two-foot ball to represent the nearest star. He says, come on, guess, 700 paces, 2,000 steps more, 400 feet, or 4,400 feet, know your way off. We'd have to go 6,720 miles before we could arrive at that star. Miles, not feet. And that's just the first star among millions. In one galaxy, in one galaxy among perhaps hundreds, maybe thousands. And all of it is in perpetual motion, perfectly synchronized. The most accurate timepiece known to man. God is the source of our salvation. It's through his grace and power that salvation becomes a reality for us. He's the control of all things. And they spin and they rotate in perfection. He does all of these things and yet his gifts and his calling towards you are irrevocable. He has made a way for you to spend eternity with him in heaven. 
He's so far greater than our, our minds, any one of our problems. He is to be loved and he is to be adored. As I read from Catechism, finishes by answering that one question. He makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. I pray that that is what has taken place in your heart as we close our time this morning with doxology. That the fruit of who we see in the sovereign God of this universe takes our hearts and makes them happy and joyful and in awe with reverence, praising him with all that is within us. Anything short of that, and we have missed it. We have missed it. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are amazed at you. A God who keeps promises, covenants to his people. A God who makes a way for us to spend eternity with him by faith, alone, in Christ alone. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here who came into our congregation this morning who did not know you, that they would be in awe of you as they see this great salvation in which you have given them, and that it would be on this day that they would know what it is to be happy in this life and in death, and that is through knowing you, Lord, our Redeemer, seeing our sin and seeing that you have saved us from it and given us a way to spend eternity with you, worshiping you, living for you, even now. May today be the day of salvation for anybody who's come to this church this morning not knowing you. For us who know you, oh Lord, may we be in awe of you this morning. May we not try to be your counselor. May we see your mind is so much greater than ours, and may it just result... In, in just amazement of our God. Thank you for the plans that you have for us, for revival, for Israel in the future, Lord. Thank you for being a God who keeps his promises and a God who tells us things like your gifts and your calling are irrevocable. We need to know that, Lord. We need to know that it's based upon a God who does not change because he can't change for the worse, and he cannot change for the better because you're already perfect in all of your ways. And may that make our hearts just be so safe and so secure and desiring to live for you and to long for you and to worship you with all that is within us. We love you and we are so thankful for you this morning, Lord. May our theology be used by your Holy Spirit to produce in us doxology. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.